Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of What's Next LinkedIn Live, where I have the honor and pleasure of welcoming somebody I have followed for a long time, just an amazing overall human, I'd like to say. Marcus Buckingham, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tiffany. Happy to be here. Well, listen, there is so many things I could say about you in this introduction, but I'm just going to start with this one. Marcus is the author of nine books, with two of them being the best-selling business books of all time. Let's just start there. Then uh, he was part of uh, the Gallup organization in co-creating Strength Finder, for any of you who have ever done that. Um, and now he is uh, leading the ADP Research Institute all around a lot of things, but employee engagement, resilience. And we're here to talk about his new book coming out April 4th, Love and Work, with my advanced copy, which I'm so thrilled to have. So we're going to dig right in, but please tell us where you're joining from. Post your questions. Marcus is here with us for the next sort of 25 minutes. But how about we start with something I do on my normal podcast, which is bullish and bearish. I'm going to ask you a quick question, Marcus. Yeah. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So Blue Origin's going back in space today. If they offered you a, a seat, Marcus, would you go? Uh, bearish. <laughs> I kind of feel the same way, although I kind of really want to go. I feel like, I don't know. I would love to see the world that way. I would too. And I, I want to want to go. I just don't want to <laughs> just don't want to go i'm very happy other people are going and that we can see what it's like i just to me that uh i don't like roller coasters let alone rockets well fair enough well listen we've got people joining us from santa barbara ohio and even stockholm sweden so we've got a good audience here today to talk about all things around love and work um look i just i kind of want to begin with your sort of statement that in education, kind of the concept of love was sort of driven out of us. Let, let's start mm -hmm. there because I think if you start kind of where it started, we can get to introducing love as a concept in work. So maybe you can kind of begin this journey for us today there. So yeah, if you have kids, you'll know this. Um, and we all were <laughs> a kid at some point. But when you're really young, you know, zero to five, you're, your parents are all about what you love. They look at what you're into. They look at what you pay attention to and what delights you and and they are fascinated by the fact that you're slightly different than your sister or your brother or your cousins or the people you grew up closest to and and they uh th they see what you love and the uniqueness of that which you love as the source of all ethics and 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 morality and they know that they want the biggest version of you to happen in your life and that's kind of how life starts and then you go to school and at kindergarten uh, that is where life is systematically drained from your life. You've got you've got loveless classrooms, and you've got you've got school, which basically turns into all the stuff that your parents were intrigued by, and that you were intrigued by. Why is my brother into that, but I'm not? Why do I laugh at that, but she or he doesn't? Why do I get into that sort of book, but they? All the stuff that that starts to help you realize that you're different, that you're unique, that you're individuated, all that stuff that starts to occur in you as you feel that you're a unique human and you want to discover about yourself and you want to cherish and uh, contribute from, all of that uh, becomes irrelevant at school. School becomes information transfer and confirmation. And the confirmation is through testing. And so from five all the way up probably to 23, 24 years old, who you are on the inside, 
what you're uniquely interested in, what grabs your attention, when does time fly by, when do you vanish into an activity, what really lifts you up when you're doing it. At the level of two foot level, that specific moment, that specific interaction, all that stuff is irrelevant to everything that you go through in school. It's all irrelevant. Everything gets turned into outside in training, outside in teaching, followed by testing. And the best student is the one who's the fullest. We assume that you're just some sort of empty vessel and we're going to just pour all this stuff inside you. And then you're going to learn more and more and more. We test more and more and more. And then and then the best student, the best graduate, the one who goes to the best colleges is the one who is the who is the fullest. And we couch it in nice words like growth mindset. But what it basically means is we think you're an empty vessel. We don't think there's anything inside of you that's unique and distinctive, even though you know that there is. All the messages we get at school is that what's inside you, what you lean into, where you learn best, it's all irrelevant. It's actually annoying to us teachers. I mean, not that there aren't great teachers, by the way, just so I'm clear, that the entire system basically says your idiosyncrasies get in the way of our standardized achievement scores. And therefore, that's really where it all goes wrong for us. And of course, then you graduate and you go into the workplace and you get more of the same, where you get goals imposed upon you from above, competency models that you're measured against from above, 360 measurement tools to measure you against the competencies. And then you're told that in order to get promoted, you need to display all of the competencies in our model. And so success becomes not how have you intelligently cultivated the unique loves that you possess. Success becomes how closely have you matched the model. And to your point, Tiffany, it starts at five, but it sort of continues all the way up, which is why we're so drugged up on Adderall and Xanax, and we've got resilience and engagement levels as low as they are. It's a systematic alienation or separation of you from you. And it's got to stop. Well, you said there, there was so much there, but let me, let me just focus on the strengths and weakness comment, because I know you have some feelings around identifying what your strengths are and identifying what your weaknesses are, but that's not how you look at it. You look at it a little uniquely uh, between what, what a strength is telling you, right? And mm. what a weakness is telling you and that how those two reconcile with each other. Maybe, maybe you could share that. Well, we're often told that a strength is what you're good at and a weakness is what you're bad at, right. which of course, by the way, means that you aren't the best judge of your strengths and your weaknesses, somebody else's. So almost <laughs> immediately you're told you aren't the expert on you. Thank you very much because your strengths are what you're good at and I'm your teacher or I'm your boss or I'm your parent and I will tell you what you're good at because <laughs> you have blind spots. So your strengths are what you're good at and we know what yours are better than you, and your weaknesses are what you're bad at, and we know what yours are better than you. That's the way that we're raised, and that's the assumption when you go to work. But actually, of course, those aren't the right definitions at all, because every single one of us has things that we're really good at, that we hate, a subject at school that we got an A in, that if we ever had to do that subject again, we would, uh, you know, that, that would be a, a cold day in hell. We would hate that. We've all got activities at work that we're really good at, and the team might actually rely on us for, that drain us. What do, you, what do you call that? You call that a strength? No, no, it weakens me. That actual activity drains the living daylights out of me. So the proper definition of that is a weakness. A weakness is any activity that weakens you, even if you're good at it. And of course, therefore, a strength. A strength is any activity, any activity that strengthens you. Any activity where when you're doing it, it invigorates you. you. It lifts you up, even if you're not good at it yet, because that's performance. What you're good at or bad at is performance. 
And somebody else could be the judge of that. Absolutely. But you know better than anyone else does what invigorates you. If you say, I love remembering people's names and something about them. I love it. Somebody else can't say, no, you don't. They can say, well, here's a better way to do that. Or here's how you could turn that into actually contribution on the team. I mean, they could, they could help you apply it, but you're the one who knows better than anyone else, which activities lift you up and which drain you. And of course, inside of the book, Love and Work, I introduced that concept of basically the, the red thread, that, that there are activities, every day's a fabric, many different threads, many activities, moments, situations, some of which are gray, black, white, blue, yellow, lift you up a little, down a little. But some of these activities in a day are red. They're, they're, they're made of a different material that, that invigorates you. And, and those red threads, those activities that strengthen you are the raw material of your strengths. They're the appetite that leads to practice, that leads to performance. They're, they're that raw material. So, and of course, if that's how you define strengths and weakness, then you are the best and only judge of what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. That's frankly what school should be teaching us from the very earliest ages. How do you use life, your life, to show you what your strengths and weaknesses are, what your red threads are? Well, I think many of us, and you know, it's kind of a common thing of do what you love. If you do what you love, you know, if you do what brings you that strength uh, and you maybe eliminate those things that drain you, how do people connect that to their job? You know, so if you say, what's the right questions to ask before you choose the right job based on what you just said, right? I want some place that amplifies what brings me joy and love and mm. not do things that just drain me with that red thread all day. Yeah, well, so there's a whole, there's a whole chapter in the book on a love and work career. How do you do that? There's two important parts in there, by the way. The first one is, frankly, just start. Your life should be, your career should be a scavenger hunt for love. It's not a lattice. It's not a jungle gym. It's a scavenger hunt for love. You just start. Well, should I have stayed in school or should I have gone to law school? I should have gone to business. Just start. There's no right way to start. You're just starting and then you're scavenging for red threads. You're looking in any new job that you take. What are the particular activities that bring me that sense of instinctive volunteerism, instinctive mastery, instinctive vanishing into the flow of it. Like there are things like that that you'll see better than anyone else. So start scavenging. But the second thing that's important to remember in career is the advice to do what you love. And I think it actually concludes with, and you'll never have to work a day in your life again. You know, do what you love and you'll never have to work. There's actually no data on that at all. The most successful people don't do what they love. They don't love all that they do. That, that's that's a myth. Having said that, measurably, they do find love in what they do. They do have some things that excite them that they do every day. They do have some things that play to their strengths every day. Not all day every day, but every day. There's a frequency to it in the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of it all that is characteristic of highly effective people. So for, for you, if you're watching and listening, you, you're not trying to find what you love in terms of an entire job, <laughs> you all red threads, an entirely red quilt. It seems as though the, the, the data would say 20%. 20% is a really good threshold number. 20% red threads. Can you find in your work activities where 20% of what you do is red threads? 
the male clinic research that I'm referring to actually shows that below 20 percent, you get 19, 18, 17, 16. There's almost a perfect linear increase. It almost looks like fake data because it's almost a perfect linear increase in burnout if you get below 20 percent. But above 20 percent, if you get 40 percent, Tiffany, or, or, or 60, it's not as though at 40, you're twice as resilient or or 60, you're three times as happy. It's almost as though a little love goes a long, long, long way. So if, if you're finding in your career that the, the, the basic guidance would be don't try to find what you love. Try to find love in what you do. And the best way to do that is to be looking for these, these clues to where your red threads are. Well, and I think over the last two years, my, I'm making a huge assumption here, so please correct me, Marcus, <laughs> is uh, I think that was a lot of what people did. They kind of reassessed, like, am I finding joy? Am I happy? Am I challenged? Do I just kind of blend right into the flow of the day? Do I feel inspired? Am I connected? Am I engaged? Am I loyal? Am I committed? All these big comments that people are searching for, right? You don't always have it every single day. Not every day is perfect. Not every day is is terrible. Would you say that that's part of what this kind of people reassessing right now when we've had so much disruption in the world of work and also our human connections, everything globally, that's kind of never happened, right? Boom. At yeah, one time. No, I mean, that's, you know, that's why it's kind of why I wrote the book the way that I did. The book itself is much more personal than any other book that I've ever written because of the last four years for me, I lost my dad. I got uh, divorced. Uh, I had a, a pandemic experience like everyone else did. Whereas you said, there are some days when you look in the mirror and they're pretty dark days where you've lost the cues for your identity, the person you bumped into in the elevator or the place where your desk was or your office was, all the cues that anchor you in terms of who you are and what kind of contribution you make. For, for all of us, really, those were removed. And there were some yeah, there were some pretty dark days, I'm sure, for everybody, certainly for me. And then there were some really clarifying days, whether you're like, to your point, where you're like, wait a minute, we are here for such a short time. I mean, this is my, you know, Love and Work is my 10th book, but it's, it's, it's a really, really personal book about how you can actually, how you can actually make a contribution in life, because, because you do realize when you're alone, as we've all been with this pandemic, you do realize that you're here for such a short time. So yes, we don't necessarily have to go and do what we love and have some perfect job, but but can we actually find work 40, 50, 60 hours a week of something that gives us a chance to express ourselves, our unique selves? Can we do that? It's not easy. It's not as though it's a, a slam dunk, but but is that at least the project of what I'm doing for 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week? And for many of us, the pandemic gives an opportunity to stop and think hard about that because we have one life and you certainly don't want to get to the end of it and go, wow, look, I had all that sort of quote unquote success, but I didn't live in my life. I lived some second rate version of somebody else's. We as human beings, you know, love's a funny thing, Tiffany. I mean, all sorts of different ways of defining love, but love in an activity, love of a thing to do. If you don't express it, it's not neutral. It doesn't just sit there. Love is a force. So if you don't express it, like any force of nature, if you repress it, it causes damage. Many of us have realized that if we don't go to work 
and have a chance to express some things that we love to do, some things where we vanish into it, some things that are super authentic for us, then, then this becomes this love that is, can, can be so productive for us, becomes a caustic, abrasive substance, and we get damaged. So I think many of us, when over the course of the pandemic, went, wait, 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 wait. I'm being, <laughs> I'm paying my dues. I'm a cog in a machine. No, I'm not actually. I'm one human. I've got one life. And although I don't expect full um, self-definition through my work, there's a lot of different domains I may have in my life as a father or a mother or a son or a community activist, a person of faith, whatever it is. We sure do spend an awful lot of time at work. <laughs> so our work had better be an expression of some idiosyncratic, unique things about me. That's undoubtedly what we're asking for, undoubtedly. And the data would, would, would strongly suggest that there are many, many millions of us asking that exact question. Does my work express the best of me? And that doesn't mean that companies have <laughs> responded as quickly as they should. It does mean with labor markets as tight as they are right now, and they're gonna stay this way for at least a decade, it does mean that companies will have to change because Right now, even there's 1.7 openings for every one person applying. We have power. We have power. So it's an interesting time for all of us as workers to start going, which companies deserve me? That's what's happening right now. And the pressure of a tight labor market will force a lot of companies to, even if they don't want to, to start being curious about what each one of us is truly like what each one of us truly loves and how we can actually express it at work. At least yeah, that's what I, I, I'm bullish about. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that there is no sort of one answer with you have individual employees. It's how do you create an environment where everybody can get a little bit of the, what, what they want. We've got, we've got a question here from one of the viewers from Janet. She said, I'd be curious to see if people love what they do more as they get older I feel I have less expectations than I did when I was fresh out of school. Any thoughts on this? Um, well, the data on that actually is um, is pretty clear. If you take two questions, I'm excited to go to work every day. Sorry, I was excited to go to work every day last week. And I have a chance to use my strengths every, every day at work. Those two questions don't vary by age. If I know how old you are, I don't know what you're going to say to those two questions. That doesn't mean that there can't be some wisdom during the course of your life. Obviously, there is some. And it doesn't mean that perhaps your expectations get lowered in terms of, in terms of what you should expect from your job. Those sorts of things may happen. But in answer to Janet's question, no. It, it, if, if she feels that way, great. But it, it isn't necessarily so that the older you get, the more likely you are to know how to find love in what you do. It doesn't vary by age. It doesn't vary by gender. It doesn't yeah. vary by race. It doesn't vary by country. Um, it varies by team. I mean, that's really the answer, by the way. It varies by team. To your point, you know, companies need to change all sorts of policies and practices in order to help us get what we love out of our work. I mean, yes, there is. There's clearly a whole bunch of human capital management practices that we need to change, which are just which are just loveless. So yes, and clearly we should be redesigning some jobs so that, for example, you don't have a nurse supervisor to nurse ratio of one to 60, because then that poor nurse supervisor can't get right. to know any of these people. So there is some stuff like that. 
But the real power actually of helping someone find love in what they do exists on a team. And so any team can start, if you're a team leader right now, you, you can start right now, just be by paying attention to the six or seven people on your team and going and trying to help them figure out, well, what are your red threads? And how can you contribute them to our team? And what are the threads of the other colors where you might need help, where you might need, look like a deer in the headlights? Don't pretend you're perfect. <laughs> you aren't. You've got some things that you really lean into and you want the team to turn to you for. And you've got other things where you probably need help. Okay, that's called teamwork. And I'm a team leader and I can start right now, regardless of what my HR people are telling me or my leaders of leaders. I can start right now being curious about the unique people on my team. Um, so th that, again, I think is actually quite encouraging because this all happens in a very local team environment or rather it can happen well and the key to that statement you just made is the manager like they're the one of the most influential people in this entire conversation because if you're 17 clicks below the ceo like the person who makes your day happy or not is that manager and so if you're listening and you're a manager like you you carry so much of that there's a ton of research out which Gallup has put around around teams that, you know, and strength finder. And as a manager, is that strength finder available for people to, to go and, and use, or, or how can they go as leaders to go and take that strength finder? Well, so there's, I built two strength assessments over the last 20, 20 years. One is strength finder, which is really for you, the individual. It's uh, measures you on 34 themes of talent and tries to help you have a language for describing yourself. Um, we built one for managers, actually, because you measure 34 themes and you're a manager of 10 people. That's 340 themes. That's, that's right. A lot. So we <laughs> built we built something called Standout, which is for managers to know their team quickly, particularly in remote, highly flexible hybrid work environments where you might not actually meet members of your team. How do you very quickly figure out what some of their red threads might be? If you wanted to take Standout or give it to your team, it's probably the best way to start. And that's free. If you go to, well, actually, if you go to marcusbuckingham.com, there's a thing that says gift of standout. During the pandemic, Tiffany, we just decided to give it away because we felt like, or I felt like I, I've got a very limited amount of things that I know how to do really well. But one of them is I know how to build psychometric assessments. <laughs> and, and if people want to have a way to get to stay connected to their team, go take standout. And you'll know quickly what sort of, red threads they might have in their lives and how you might be able to weave them into contribution. So that's at marcusbuckingham.com. It's gift of standout and uh, it's free. It's about 17 minutes. It's, it's a quick way for you as a team leader to get to know the uniqueness of each of your people. You did a great article last year uh, in HBR on resilience and engagement. Mm. Uh, that we've all had to learn how to be a lot more resilient to sort of 10 things that Marcus calls out. If you haven't seen that article, go look for it. It's it's really, really good. What would you say? Because I think that when people aren't happy, they're not finding that love, they're not feeling the connection, they're not feeling that spark. The, the reaction to that is a lack of engagement, I'm guessing. And building resilience of learning how to kind of navigate this. I've never met my manager or my team. I'm working remote. Like I'm being asked to do things that, you know, I don't enjoy bring me no sort of strength in throughout my day. It's just quickly, how would you describe resilience and engagement and where are opportunities for managers and individuals to improve those two things? So, yeah, so we've, um, 
spent the last I don't know, five years or so doing these global studies, looking at the difference between resilience and engagement. Engagement is the proactive state of mind that enables you to give of your best. We measure it by asking questions about you related to, do you know what's expected of you at work? Do you feel you have a chance to use your strengths every day? Do you feel like someone recognizes you for excellent work? These are all questions about your proactive ability to give of your best. Resilience is a reactive frame of mind that enables you to withstand obstacles and bounce back. So there, one is asking questions about whether you feel like you have the agency to make choices in your job, whether you feel like your uh, team leader is someone that you can completely trust, whether you feel like your senior leaders are one step ahead of events, whether you feel like your team leader knows what you need even before you know that you need it. Questions that relate to that part of resilience, which is a state, not a trait. I mean, clearly some parts of resilience are a trait. You, we, we all know this. Some people just seem to be naturally more resilient than other people, but it's a bit like happiness. It's got, you, you've got a resilience set point, but around that set point, you could be more resilient or less resilient. So we've been measuring that over the last four or five years. About 64, 65% of the variance in your resilience can be explained by your engagement. So there's overlap. There's no question there's overlap. But undoubtedly, you can be highly engaged and not very resilient and vice versa. Having said that, the simplest way to drive both is attention. So whether you're a team leader or a team member, frequent attention drives both. By which I mean, if you just checked it, if you're a team leader and you go, well, what can I do to build resilience and engagement in my team? Check in with each person on your team, either by phone or by text or by in person, if you have that chance. Uh, 15 minutes every week, 52 weeks a year, 15 minutes. Ask two questions. What did you love and loathe last week? What are your priorities this week? How can I help? Just ask those two questions 52 times a year with each person on your team individually. What that does to the person is that person knows my my reality is my very recent past and my very recent future. And then I'm in the middle of it. I need a manager who's not talking theoretically about something I might've done three months ago or some vague concept like strategic thinking that I need to get better at or something. It's like, what did I love? And then what are my priorities? How can they help? Suddenly now, I'm, I'm now in relationship. I'm now in relationship with my team leader about the real work that I'm doing. So it's me and my work, me and my work, me and what I love and my work, me and what I love and how they can help with my work. Like it's, it's, that's the blood coursing through the veins of a team. And, and when that happens, measurably, if you check in every week, these engagement and resilience scores go through the roof. If you want to see the actual data, go to adpri.org and you can see the full 60-page reports or go read the HBR articles. But, but unquestionably, managers who check in frequently with each of their people in a super light-touch way drive engagement and resilience. If you don't do that, you can't address any of these engagement or resilience questions. You can't address any of them. Everything flows through a simple light touch interaction between a team leader and a team member. And if, and if the team leader goes, well, I can't do that because I've got, I've got too many people, then you've got too many people. Right. Right. <laughs> so what's the well, perfect span I, of control? It's, it's yeah, not I'll span of control, it's span of attention. Well, I'll tell you, uh, there was a study that Bain did and I, I often use this when I'm on stage and I'm trying to make a point about almost what you just said. And I'm going to focus specifically on salespeople for just a second. That 66% of a seller's time is spent on non-selling activities. 
When they're coached, they're coached on administrative functions. Third, those two are from Salesforce. The third, this one's from Bain. 47% of salespeople would not spend $1 to have one hour of their manager's time for coaching. <laughs> not $1. So what you just said, right? I've just asked these two questions. A lot of times people make it to management because they've been promoted because of doing really good work in the role they were in. And then they were, my stepfather taught me this, you know, the Peter principle sort of raised to the level of your incompetency. I was probably like 12, right? Cause I thought I knew everything. He's like, you have hit the ceiling of the, like, that's why I, he, I knew that. And then, and then about two years later, three years later, he handed me in search of excellence by Tom Peters. I, mm. I think there must've been a thread there somehow. somehow. <laughs> anyway. So coaching is something as a leader that you have to really learn how to do. So just even asking that question, because I tell you, most leaders are going to be like, did we, where are we? Check, 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 check. Okay, bye. Right. It's not a real human check-in, especially during this time of mental health and burnout and all of that, like making that touch base on a personal level. So what would you say about coaching and time for leaders and how they can get better at that? Well, yes, that, uh, that data is uh, from Bain and, and from Salesforce. Is, uh, that's really funny. I actually didn't know that. I wouldn't spend one dollar <laughs> one hour of time. If you want to know what a leader does, I mean, go watch The Last Dance. The Last Dance is a 10-part series looking at the Chicago Bulls when they run that run of championships. And if you want to know, like many leaders go, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the strategist. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not coaching people. Um, or, you know, you'll have... Um, some leaders go, look, my people are so good. They don't need me. They're so good. Uh, yeah, okay. Michael Jordan, probably the best basketball player to ever play the game. You think Phil Jackson talked to him after every single game about what he could tweak or course correct or adjust? Or Yes, every single game. You think Michael Jordan needed someone to check up on him? No, he didn't. Do you think he needed someone smart to check in with him about the next game? Yes, all the time. So if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to do what Phil Jackson did with the best players probably that ever played again, sorry, LeBron James, I don't know, Steph Curry, we could have an argument about that. But anyway, it's really good. Um, uh, if you don't want to do what Phil Jackson was doing, don't lead people and don't say that you are. Leading, it's not like, well, I, I'd love to check in with my people, but I'm too busy leading. No, checking in with your people to be able to have them have a more productive, more fulfilled, more effective next game, next week is leading. The other stuff might be you're really smart, so you could think about multivariate analysis as you figure out strategy. Okay, that's fine. That's not leading. Leading is helping somebody else have an incredibly powerful, productive next week. And if the sound of that bores you, that's fine. Don't lead people. Well, the other and thing in that story, that other thing, that other part of that story you just gave with Michael Jordan is, or even Kobe Bryant. I'll use Kobe in this one, not uh, not Michael. I'm in LA, so, <laughs> so You're uh, uh, Kobe would show up hours before the game and practice and so does Steph Curry. And so mm. the best in the game are always practicing. They show up early, they practice, they take a thousand free throws before the game even starts. They're constantly working on it. So as individuals, you can't say, I'm good at this. I'm just not going to work at it anymore. Like, well, heck no, no, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, um, that's why love is really important. I mean, that's why, you know, this book, I called it Love and Work because I mean, and I went with the Harvard as the publisher because I wanted to rehabilitate the word love. But if you have got 
red threads. If you know what specific activities you lean into and what specific activities time flies by, what specific activities you can't help but volunteer for, then what you're doing is you're really getting in touch with your appetites. And, and we always, you know, some folks will say practice makes perfect or, you know, the 10,000 hours thing and, and discipline practice. That's all a red herring. If you look at what Steph Curry's doing or Michael Jordan's doing or, or Kobe's doing, it's an obsession. You all of us need to get in touch with that which we love because love leads to practice, leads to perfection. Love leads to obsession. That it's like, and if you're a team leader, you, you can't just wave a magic wand and imagine that every single person on your team, even if they're in the same role, has the same red threads. They don't. So if you want people to practice, if you want people to, to really take seriously their own improvement, their own growth, then you have to pay attention to loves. That doesn't mean that every single red thread will lead to extraordinary performance. There are some things that we love to do that just bring us joy, but we actually can't ever get good enough to be paid for them. If you've ever tried to paint or sing or play golf or play tennis or, and you love it, but you could never win at it in terms of a job, that's fine. That's called a hobby. And that brings more love into your life. And that's cool. But in terms of actual performance on a job, love is the source of obsession. It's the source of practice, which leads to performance. So there'll be some things that do actually follow that thread, no pun intended. And that's what those extraordinary performers that you just mentioned, that's what they've tapped into. It's not an effort. For, I mean, it is an effort to practice, but Kobe's there or was there because he couldn't help but not be. Right. Steps there because he's at one with himself when he's there. Right. Um, same with Lionel Messi, same with Cristiano Ronaldo. It's like, it, it's an obsession, which is amazing, which is, it's an authentic expression of themselves turned into skills practice and repetition, which turns into contribution. All of us should want that sort of alignment. Yeah, I, I would say I feel like I'm super aligned. I love what I do. I enjoy it. It brings me happiness and strength and and fulfillment and all kinds of things. But but I'm in my 50s. So to the previous question, like took me a minute to get there, right? Kind of a thing. But I want to wrap this up because I know we've we've only got a limited amount of time. So don't forget to go pick out, pick up the copy of Love and Work comes out April 4th. How can people continue to learn about your great work, Marcus? I know you've got a new series with HBR out right now. Where can people right. find it? So if you go to loveandwork.org, we figured that some people like books. We have the cover article coming out on HBR in the middle of this month in April. So if you like articles, the cover article is on the Love and Work organization. There's the book, of course, but then we've got a, a, a web series that if you buy the book, you've got access to about six hours of, of content with uh, me and HBR on the Love and Work leader in you, Love and Work relationships, Love and Work learning, Love and Work teams love and work leaders. So if you're really interested in how you can actually start to either build a different kind of business, build a different kind of company, or build a different kind of team, or build a different kind of life, or I guess as a parent, build a different kind of home, there's there's a, a web series uh, available on loveandwork.org, which for those people who like video and then lecture notes and then quizzes and like that kind of learning, go there and we'll dive into it sort of, as you said, 17 clicks in if you'd like. 
Well, great. Well, Marcus, I just want to end this by saying thank you so much. I am grateful for you. I am grateful for your time. I know everybody who is listening enjoyed it as much as I did. So thank you again for joining us here today on the What's Next livecast. It's my pleasure, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. Bye, everybody.